Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before we start this program, I want to remind you about a couple of things. One is that this podcast lives on a website called wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com has got lots of resources in and of itself that are worth visiting and checking out webinars, books, all that kind of stuff. You can also sign up for some of our groups, like our investor club, if you're interested in, in potentially getting off the sidelines, getting involved with some investments, if you are of the accredited investor type, that is, of course. Also want to remind you, and this may be the last reminder for this, because we only have about 20 spots left for our April event, our meetup, the Wealth Formula Meetup, which uh, is in Phoenix. It's on April 22nd and 23rd. It's just a big party, fun lectures, uh, you know, buses, but cocktails and a lot of socializing. This is a really special event. Everybody who goes to it is always super happy that they did. And a lot of times it's as much about what they learned as who they met, right? The, the people who they met is sometimes even more valuable on an ongoing basis. And so go check that out. Wealth Formula Events with an S.com. Again, that's wealthformulaevents.com. And uh, with that, let me talk to you a little bit about what's going on. As you know, well, you probably already know more than I do because I am recording this podcast on the Ides of March. If you recall the Julius Caesar, you know, the warnings on March 15th. Well, anyway, this is one day before the Federal Reserve meets to discuss the economy and its plans for the near future. Now, the 900-pound gorilla in the room, of course, we now know, is inflation. And although the war in Ukraine may be somewhat of a mitigating factor for impending hawkish moves anticipated, rates are probably going to go up, right? And by the time this post, uh, or I should say this recording, uh, is published, the, the podcast is uh, live, you're going to already know a lot more than I do right now. And let me guess what happened. There was an increase in the Fed's discount rate of 25 basis points, or otherwise known as one quarter percent. You know, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not clairvoyant, even though I'm talking about the Ides of March and all that kind of stuff. But what that's what's baked in the markets already, and the the equity markets and all that. And what will dictate any further movements after Wednesday is really going to be about 
what the Fed says with regard to further rate hikes and the disposition of its bond portfolio and all that and, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff. So, okay. So you already know more than me, but you know, so you, you're already seeing what's happening. You have a pretty good idea. Maybe the market's reacted again. And so what do you do about it? Do you panic? Do you stop investing? Well, here's the problem with that, right? Because that's the knee-jerk response, right? It'd be afraid and just freeze up and not do anything. But remember, why are the rates going up in the first place? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's because of inflation. So what happens to your money in your bank account during inflation as it's sitting there getting, you know, less, far less than 1% per year growth? Well, it loses money, right? So if you've got 6% inflation and your money's growing at like, you know, half percent, that means you are guaranteed to lose about five and a half percent per year and it, it loses value. So keeping yourself in cash during these sort of uncertain times, no, I'm not saying don't keep any cash. It's not what I'm saying at all, but just be aware that, you know, the more cash that you keep, uh, that cash is pretty much guaranteed to lose value, right? I mean, that, so you're not, you're not necessarily doing anything conservative by guaranteeing losses. I don't, I mean, at least I don't think of it that way. So in order for you to, you know, in this, that kind of, this kind of inflationary market, I mean, you, you have to, you know, you just even to break even, you're going to have to be making, you know, five, 6% on your money. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? So, so the question is, what am I doing? Because that's what people want to know. And I'm not giving financial advice because I'm not, you know, I am not qualified to do so. I don't have, you know, I don't have, you know, those special certifications that you can get in a month or two, but what am I doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm still investing my money in the same assets that I've been doing all along and that are hedged for inflation. Because the good news is that I don't have to change my investment strategy at all because, well, mostly what I do is multifamily real estate. And that happens to be a great hedge against inflation. But Buck, you ask, won't cap rates go up with interest rates? I mean, I see this question all the time. We do a webinar that's always, well, what are we going to do about cap rates? Well, typically that is true right? Although it's not necessarily that cap rates go up uh, linearly with uh, interest rates, but, you know, let's go a little bit deeper on that question though. Ask yourself once again, why would mortgage rates go up in the first place? Of course, they follow the 10-year treasury. The 10-year treasury follows inflation. Yes. And yes, inflation, when that happens, mortgage rates go up because the 10-year treasury goes up and the 10-year treasury went up because inflation went up. And guess what else goes up when inflation is up? Rents, rents. That's right. In other words, increasing rates is hedged by increasing rents. So again, it's all baked in. It's all baked in there, right? So I am not too worried, frankly. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we have nothing to worry about. You know, there is a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. And like it or not, we live in interesting times with plenty of danger and uncertainty. And all we can do during this time is to be rational, to be disciplined, and think about how we allocate our money and not just to be ruled by fear. You know, how we allocate money may not be the same, by the way, if, if you live other places, if you're in different situations. Here in Russia, 
man, you're probably trying to buy Bitcoin as quickly as possible. You're probably too late now. Your ruble's worth nothing. But you got that currency risk that they've got. And, and you know, you might do try to do something else and hang your, hang your money somewhere really quickly. But in the U.S., the more reliable hedge, reliable, I will say right now, my humble opinion, might still be good old-fashioned multifamily real estate, some of these boring, boring assets that I always talk about. It's a complicated topic, though, this whole thing, what's going on in the world and how it's going to affect the markets, how it's going to, you know, trends, investing trends. And that's exactly why we're going to keep talking about it. And that's what we are going to do with our guest on this week's Wells Formula podcast, David Sacco, when we come back right after these messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is David Sacco. Now, David is a practitioner in residence of finance from the Pompeii College of Business at the University of New Haven. And he has become a nationally recognized expert in investment trends and analysis on the stock market, inflation, cryptocurrency, and Dogecoin. David, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks, Buck. Thanks for having me. I'm going to have to come back to that Dogecoin part in a minute, but let's start. Let's start talking a little bit about the 900-pound uh, gorilla in the room. I think that's what everybody's worried about. As we record this on the Ides of March, uh, we are you know, a day away from the Fed's meeting or announcements. Uh, the plan, presumably, is to raise interest rates to address the inflationary environment that we're in. What do you think the Fed's best options to combat inflation are right now? Well, unfortunately, I don't think they have too many good options. I'm pretty sure that uh, Powell telegraphed today or yesterday that he's they're probably only going to raise rates 25 basis points. I think, uh, you know, before the last few weeks, there was a possibility that they would go 50. I think if if all they were uh, having to deal with right now was the fight against inflation, they probably would raise rates a little bit more quickly. But obviously, the war and the impact that that's had on the energy and financial markets has created a level of uncertainty that the Fed just you know doesn't like to deal with. So I think they'll go 25, which 
you know, will help start what they need to do, but ultimately they'll have to pick up the pace. And I think they're just a little worried about the uncertainty related to the war right now. Well, that's, and that's a, a good point, which is basically that the war, it's got an interesting effect because it's also increasing uh, the price of energy, energy prices. And that's, uh, you know, that we're feeling the uh, effects of that as well, in addition to uh, the inflationary environment that we were already in. So I guess the idea is there's volatility in the world uh, and therefore maybe we shouldn't be quite as hawkish about this right now as, as we might be otherwise. Yeah, I think, they, but it actually put the Fed in the box. So the way I like to think about it is that demand pre-Russian invasion of the Ukraine was sort of like a rubber band that was stretched pretty, pretty taut, right? So demand was creating a lot of pressure that was creating the price pressure and inflation the war and and the impact on the oil market sort of added to that pressure, right? So, you know, normally to to sort of combat rising prices or inflation, you sort of, you know, raise interest rates and that sort of puts the brakes on demand. But at the same time, the wars created all these other uncertainties, right, about what could happen. And we saw that in the stock market last week. So the Fed's the Fed's task is to sort of tap the brakes on the economy without bringing us to a crashing halt, which is it would have been difficult before. I mean, the situation that we were in because of the, uh, you know, the recession related to the pandemic and how we came out of it and, and made that very difficult to begin with. And the war just exacerbates that. So this is this is probably the toughest situation that any Fed has faced, I'd say, since Volcker back in the, the early 80s. I mean, I would even put this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, 2008 was pretty rough, too. But, you know, 2008, it was. There wasn't any debate about what needed to be done, right? Because it was just a complete meltdown. This one's a little trickier because the economy is generally doing well, but you got to just resist the urge to slam on the brakes and throw us into a recession. And then I guess that's that's the next question is, you know, is it possible uh, really to eliminate inflation without triggering a recession? You know, again, we'll, we'll get into the the sort of what's your definition of a recession? Well, the, the way the Fed reduces inflation is they slow demand, right? They raise interest rates that slows people's spending. It it makes you know it makes it better for people to save money now and invest it and then spend it later. So you're slowing the economy to tame inflation, and the recession is just definitionally you know a slowdown of a certain amount for a certain time, right? So right. you have to slow the economy, which is sort of is what starts a recession. So it'll be it'll be difficult to not have, you know, what I would at least call a, you know, relatively large economic slowdown if we're going to get inflation under control. Because remember, it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, right? This, this is this is going on globally, right? Every every central bank around the world, every big monetary authority use the same playbook. And, you know, we are we are seeing the effects of that. I'm curious, kind of uh, your take on how this affects, you know, the equity markets, the real estate markets and such, because, you know, certainly uh, you would think a slowdown or recession would, you know, potentially hurt the markets. But we, we've seen sort of a lack of uh, correlation, uh, particularly during COVID. I mean, we had one of the biggest, we had one of the biggest recession in history. The stock markets act like it didn't even happen. So oh, what, what do you, what do you, what do you think happens there? I mean, I know you're, you're kind of, you're, you're interested in, in the market trends as well. So remember, when we see interest rates start to go up, 
that has, you know, obviously it, it, it creates a situation where equities become less attractive to fixed income investments. But interest rates are still so low that that comparison, I don't think, is, is that valid. I mean, if interest rates were at four, five, six, seven percent, then I think maybe we have that conversation. So park that, yeah. you know, on the on the equity front for a second. At the same time, the equity markets are forward looking. Right. So the, your, your analogy about the pandemic is a good one. Right. Because obviously when the pandemic hit and it's funny, I'm in the same place I was two years ago, visiting my son in Charlotte, North Carolina, when the economy shut down and, you know, the, the, the whole economy turned into a ghost town. Now, about three weeks later or four weeks later, we kind of realized that it probably wasn't going to be that bad of an economic event. So the market's sort of looking forward, said, OK, we're going to have a recovery. The government's going to throw a lot of money into people's pockets in the form of direct stimulus. The Fed and other central banks are going to engage in easy monetary policy. All of that really bodes well for a real big economic expansion, which in fact happened. So I think the stock market right now is sort of thinking about, OK, what, you know, what is happening next? Now, there's still tons of investable dollars out there. Economies are, you know, the problem with inflation is that the economy is growing too strongly. Well, on the one hand, that's a very good thing for the stock market. So I think the stock market is sort of taking the at least, you know, uncertain Nirvana approach right now, which is assuming that the Fed's going to be able to pull something off without cratering the economy. Um, and then and I think that's why it's they, they're a little bit more sanguine about things going forward. The real estate market is an interesting one, because, again, when when rates go up, you would expect that to put pressure on housing prices because it makes mortgages more expensive. At the same time, you know, what we haven't seen in 20, 30 or 40 years has, but we've seen asset inflation, but we haven't seen price inflation. So, you know, when interest rates go up because of inflation, on the one hand, that's going to, you know, retard investment in real estate because of higher interest rates. But on the other hand, the inflation itself sort of helps boost asset prices. So you've got, you know, things pulling in, in both directions. And, and I think the market is still relatively positive right now. In terms of commercial real estate, I think the interesting thing is and I, I'm big in the multifamily market myself. And I often get this question about, you know, what to do given the possibility or the probability that, that, that uh, mortgage rates are going to go up. And in situations like that, I think we also have to put into context the idea that, well, why are they going up? They're going up because inflation and what does inflation suggest? Well, I mean, certainly for a multifamily investor, that means your rent's going up too. So you may have a little bit of a hedge there. Do you feel like there's, you know, do you think that's true? And, and, and maybe could you, you know, talk about other situations that may have a parallel offsetting type um, situations like that? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, there's there's the, the 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 rent component, and there's also just the price appreciation of you know when when inflation goes up, all real assets increase in price. Whether we're talking about gold, real estate, um, and the and the, I think you know the the other thing that's happened, and this is you know exacerbated, but also uh, started by the pandemic, is the shift in mobility. Right now that we've gone through this transformation where people are not tied to a geographic location because of their jobs, we've seen this kind of steady growth in real estate prices in a lot of different areas, right? You can basically take your job now and go work anywhere. So that's sort of a structural change that I think is profound enough that it's going to eat up a lot of the uh, lower demand that will result from interest rates going up, right? I think there are plenty of people still out there looking to relocate, looking to move maybe away from 
urban areas or just move to a different area because they can now move with their job. So that's going to help keep a bid. And the other thing, your point about multifamily is, is a good one, because as much as prices of homes have gone up and, and there's still a pretty strong bid, prices of rents are, are starting to outpace that. So you're that, no. that sort of arbitrage between buying and renting. Well, if you're an investor in multifamilies or you're buying places that you're going to rent, you're right. That rent is outpacing your cost. So there's, there's more profit in that trade as well. So a, a lot of conflicting, conflicting things, but you're, but you're absolutely right on, on that property front. You talk a little bit about, you know, we, we, of course, in the U.S., we're kind of looking at what's going on here and we don't have a good sense of what's going on in the rest of the world. How is the current crises, whether it's inflation, the war affecting some of our, you know, major partners or nemesis in the world, like, like say, China? So I would say it was funny. I was just speaking with someone else about the inflation and we were talking about what it means for the dollar. And, you know, the thing about inflation, when you're talking about different countries and different currencies, what you care about is the relative level of inflation. Right. So because right. inflation is is pretty consistently high around the world. Right. Because of, you know, again, most of the world responded to the pandemic the same way. Most of the world used the same toolkit in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. So inflation is rising mm -hmm. steadily around the world. So I don't think that's going to cause a a huge change in in currency rates or balance of payments because everybody is having experiencing the same inflation but you know there is this dynamic that's going on now more so i think related to what's going on with russia and the ukraine in terms of the dollar's role as the reserve currency of the world, which, you know, it still is by far, right? I yeah. mean, if you look at international yeah. trade, 60% of international trade is done in dollars, 20% is done in euro. And I think the Chinese currency is less than 5%, right? Which, you know, they're, they are, they're underweighted in terms of their currency in international trade relative to the size of their economy. So, you know, I don't think we're going to see too much change on that front because what gives the dollar value isn't really anything that we do. I mean, it's the underlying strength of our economy, and it's also the perception that people put into it, right? They want dollars, right? Even our, our worst enemies out there geopolitically still want dollars because it's such a stable currency, right? Russia right now, right, the, the sanctions we're imposing are because Russia needs dollars, right? Because their currency is depreciating, and the only way they can maintain what they're doing is to have a stable currency. So I, I don't really see a, a seismic shift. I mean, China will try to tweak the rest of the world. They've been trying for 15 years to get people to move away from the dollar as the reserve currency, but there really isn't a viable option just yet. And I'm sure yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that when we go on to crypto in a little bit. But. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me about the, the whole Chinese thing too, is that like, you know, they have, uh, you know, in, in my, in my estimation, their primary goal has really been to be seen as the world's economic leader. You know, the, and take over that role of, of the U.S. and this this whole uh, conflict, and I think their lack of joining the rest of the world in condemnation uh, has really hurt that. Uh, it's, it's sort of an aside, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll look, I'm, I I tend to focus on these issues from the economic perspective. Right. Um, you know, less so from the the, the geopolitical because. You know, but don't they kind of affect each other, though? I mean, if you're going to be a geopolitical leader, you're going to, you know, you're going to have to have that respect. of. They do. But here's what I, what I would what I would push back is the following. So what we've done, for instance, with Russia, where we've cut off their uh, our importing of Russian oil, which 
was marginal anyway, right? It was only right. like three or four percent. We haven't done now. Remember, if we really wanted to cripple Russia's economy, we could completely deny them access to the dollar market for any oil. So even the nations that continue buying oil from them, we could essentially freeze their dollars and not let them have access to it. Yet we're still willing to do that, right? So right. ultimately. You know, now, again, there's probably very good reasons, one of which is Russia could actually interpret that as an act of war and might escalate things. But the point is, everybody always winds up being somewhat pragmatic in, in what they're doing. And I think, you know, is in this, obviously, it's it's an awful humanitarian tragedy. Um, but, you know, hopefully it resolves itself sooner rather than later. But I think 10 years from now, it'll be in the rearview mirror and everybody will just be focusing on the economic issues of the day. Um, which which take precedence. So one of the things that uh, is that leads us to is I'm a Russian citizen and I have an idea that this is about to happen. Personally, I'm I'm thinking about moving a lot of my rubles into Bitcoin if possible. Is that did that happen? You know, I I don't think so. Uh, just because of the price action that we saw last week, plus the fact that. Um, you know, rush pretty quickly, I think, to cut off. Now, you know, they have a very sophisticated tech community out there. So I'm sure a lot of their citizens have found mm-hmm. ways around that. But I, I mean, here's the thing. The people who hold most of the assets in Russia, the oligarchs, weren't holding their assets in Russia to begin with, right? They're all mm-hmm. offshore in dollars, in euros, right? That's why those guys have those, you know, $500 million yachts and the $20 million apartments in New York and London. So I think the bulk of Russian wealth was already held outside the country. Your point is correct. I mean, when the ruble, you know, took a bath in the last few weeks, um, you know, that certainly is going to hurt the average Russian citizen. But again, only to the extent that they had to buy imported goods, which there probably weren't that many anyway. I mean, I I think, unfortunately, the average Russian citizen had a pretty poor standard of living before Russia invaded Ukraine, and they still have a pretty poor standard of living. So I'm not sure it's had a huge impact. Um, You know, obviously, Visa and MasterCard shutting down are going to affect, you know, some of the middle class in Russia. Um, But I don't think, you know they do such a good job of controlling the narrative that I'm not sure it's going to have, uh, you know, much of an effect on, on certainly getting them to be, you know, a regime change or anything like that. One of the arguments that I think, uh, you know, have uh, cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin proponents have had um, for, for years now, which I don't know that I, I, you know, I, I, I believe in, in Bitcoin, I own it. Uh, what I don't necessarily see it right now as an asset that is um, that that is somehow uh, protected against other markets, um, it to me it's not right now a a protection against inf- it, it's basically rises and falls based on what the other markets are doing. What is your take on that? Yeah, so I think in the last you know six months, what we've seen is that Bitcoin um, has basically become pretty correlated with the NASDAQ. Right. So it's sort of a, a you know, a, a higher risk, right? It's not, you know, not, you know, a blue chip stocks, um, but it's a it's sort of a higher risk asset and it moves pretty much in tandem with that, you know, slightly bigger moves up and down, but it's, it's yeah. pretty correlated to what NASDAQ's done. So I think, I think the way the trading community views Bitcoin is that it is just in that category of what we would call risk assets, you know, higher leverage right. than normal stock trades. Um, and I, I agree with you. I mean, look, you know, alt, could Bitcoin ultimately become sort of a version of digital gold? Possibly. But it's not there yet. 
right? Um, I think what's intriguing about Bitcoin is that what we've seen from central banks in not just the last two years with the pandemic, but the last 30 years of financial crises is that every major currency around the world, ultimately, there's some central bank that can use that currency to manage their domestic economies and they have some control over it. So, you know, what, 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 what Bitcoin, and again, I, I wouldn't say all cryptos because there's, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of cryptos, right? So the first shakeout is gonna be, which is the crypto that becomes what we think of as crypto going forward. Right now it's probably Bitcoin as much as anything else. And then does there become enough global demand for people to rely on that? Not just, you know, in the sophisticated investor community, but, you know, what I'm thinking more of is people in underdeveloped economies who literally suffer as their currencies fluctuate on an everyday basis. Yeah. You know, I think those are the people that potentially could have a lot of value for because, you know, they won't see that uh, standard of living fluctuation that happens uh, with, with weak currencies. But we're, right. you know, there's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of time between now and then. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, hyperinflation in Zimbabwe versus uh, Bitcoin volatility. I mean, you'd still exactly. probably take the Bitcoin volatility. Exactly. Right. El Salvador. Right. So the fact that countries like El Salvador are making that move, again, it's highly symbolic. But, you know, if if we can get, if the technology is stable enough in the rest of the world, i.e. meaning that those people in those poor countries actually have cell phones and actually can access their digital wallets or maybe even local, uh, you know, uh, crypto platforms, then maybe there's a chance. But, you know, again, we're talking, you know, years, years away from something like that, even uh, becoming a seed of, a, of an idea. My view on cryptocurrency has largely been this idea that uh, for the most part, there's Bitcoin and then there's everything else. And Bitcoin, for the most part, has been accepted to some extent um, by traditional money mark, you know, money, Wall Street, uh, as some type of digital gold. And it's, you know, it's here to stay. Everything else is, um, is essentially, in my view, kind of a software company. It's like some sort of a software startup or tech, but, you know, obviously it's decentralized, so it's different. Uh, out of that, first of all, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Second of all, you, uh, you know, you, what, you know, what, uh, you know, what cryptocurrencies do you think are out there that are doing something that might make it, you know, more dominant in the future? So it's interesting. So my, my background is in financial markets, right? So I, I approach this, you know, purely from the sort of trading and investing mm. perspective. And the part of crypto that scares the heck out of me is the technology side, right? So mm -hmm. I, you know, I sort of understand how blockchain works, but I'm not a blockchain expert, right? So my, you know, my understanding of Bitcoin is, you know, the algorithm is such that there's a diminishing amount of Bitcoin. It basically becomes a finite asset. Mm -hmm. You know, the way crypto vaults work, they're essentially unhackable. And again, my belief in that just comes from the fact that I know that there are hundreds of billions of dollars of Bitcoin that's lost and locked up. So if someone had a way of hacking into it, there's a huge financial incentive to do it. Right. The rest of these currencies, you know, I, I don't know enough about and to really opine on them, right? Except to, you sure. know, and, and then ultimately, you know, Remember, whether we're talking about Bitcoin, gold, U.S. dollars or euros, it really has nothing to do with the uh, 
uh, underlying technology or who's writing the pieces of paper. It has to do with people's belief in it, right? Yeah. And we wish we don't know how that's going to play out. I mean, right now it seems to be Bitcoin and, and maybe to a lesser extent Ethereum. Um, but I've also, you know, I mean, I, and I and I can't believe this is true, but I've I've heard of, you know, these sort of scandals where you know someone literally just creates a cryptocurrency, mm. goes out and sells it, and then. You know, and there's not even any scarcity associated with it, which, you know, we, we look, we saw that with meme stocks a year, a few years ago. I mean, you know, there's, there's yeah. sort of the power of of markets, which obviously is huge and is big. And then there's also some underlying sense of reality. And, and, and I'm not sure where we're at yet on on cryptos. So it's going to be a learning process. Although I do see, at least in your bio, it mentions a, uh, that you have some opinions on Dogecoin. Of all things, is that accurate? I, I'm not actually sure how that got into my bio. I got to be honest with you. So again, Dogecoin is the perfect example, though, right? Yeah, but it the- was created as a spoof. You know, Elon Musk says something. So, yeah, so to, I, I would say Dogecoin yeah. is that end of the spectrum. You know, I like for instance, I don't even know if Dogecoin has the same type of algorithm that Bitcoin does. Right? Does it actually have that self? ending algorithm where there's some scarcity associated with it you know is it as uh technologically secure as bitcoin seems to be i I don't you know this is where we need you know some computer scientists to help us because look my biggest fear is you wake up one day and somebody has figured out a way to crack the bitcoin algorithm right and then all of a sudden it's a printing press so now Again, that fear is no different than the fear that we wake up one morning and we go onto our banking account apps and there's all zeros there, right? Because theoretically that could happen as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just a lot of technological uncertainty because the technology is constantly evolving and, and we and we don't know, know what's next. So I, you know, in my role as a Bitcoin expert, and I say that with parentheses around it, um, <laughs> I'm often asked to give investment advice. And my advice typically is don't invest more in Bitcoin than you're willing to lose tomorrow. Right. Because, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's, you know, and then that's and that's OK. I mean, look, as part of any investing strategy, having some high risk assets is OK. Right. But, yeah. you know, you have to have the right percentage of them. And obviously that depends on, you know, your stage in life and, and all that kind of stuff. What is your your take on? You know, not necessarily investment advice per se, but you know, my my listeners are they're they're investors. And so when you look at what's going on with the Fed, when you look at the war, the volatility, what is a good way to frame this for an investor looking at allocating money for their own uh, you know, for their own net worth? Sure. So um, let's go back to where we were, let's say, eight, you know, two years ago, right? The pandemic hits, stock market gets annihilated. And then, like I said, roughly three or four weeks after that, you know, I, I think we, we sort of knew that things weren't going to be that worst case scenario that the sort of the market was pricing in, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, at a time like that, I, you can sit there and look and say, okay, what is the, the symmetry of risk? Well, I think the symmetry of risk back then was that market was more likely to go up that it was to go down, right? And then obviously since then, the value of the market has doubled roughly. Um, and then, you know, once we got to that point, the economy's firing pretty well. We've got stimulus, fiscal stimulus. We've got, a, you know, easy monetary policy. You know, about a year ago, we probably were in a uh, 
50-50, right? It could go up, it could go down. And then as we sort of got towards the end of last year, my opinion, you know, even before the Russian stuff started was, you know, the, the asymmetry probably was a little more likely to go down than up. Again, nothing because more than we go in cycles, right? So right. we had this huge amount of demand, right? It was supply couldn't even keep up with the amount of demand that we had. So, you know, the fact that inflation finally reared its head wasn't a shock. We know how central banks deal with inflation. They jack up interest rates, and that generally is going to lead to a little bit of a down cycle. So I'd say, you know, if I was waiting the chance of it going up versus going down here, I'd say 60-40, it goes down, you know, 65-35. And again, I think what investors need to do is, you know, and I'm, I've been guilty of this my whole career. You, you can't just pick the top and the bottom, right? You have to sort of think about on balance. So that means shift your equity percentages a little lower, even now, right? I mean, if you think about how much we're up in the last five years, anyone who's been in the market for the last five years is sitting on some pretty good gains. So yeah. scaling back your percentage of equities is probably not a bad thing. If we do get, you know, higher interest rates, four, five, six, seven percent, that means in the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to have a chance to move some of your assets into fixed income at you know decent returns. You yeah. know, I mean, part of the problem is when rates are low, we all chase return by increasing our risk. Right. Right. Now that rates are probably poised to go up, we can take a little risk off the table and then hopefully lock in some higher rates, you know, via less risky assets as interest rates go up. Um, but just, you know, constantly be thinking about the, the balance of what's more likely to happen. And obviously, where you are in your life cycle. You know, anyone who's had money in the market for the last few years has done pretty well. And even though it's down a bit from the highs, it's still a, it's still a decent time to pair back a little bit. David Sacco, everyone. Uh, David, thank you so much uh, for your time and, and your perspective in these uncertain times. Thank you for having me, Buck. It was a pleasure. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. That certainly uh, stuff that we need to know. We need to stay current and thinking about all these topics and uh, we'll continue to do so particularly in these times of high volatility and interesting times as i called it earlier by the way interesting times is the name that i've given the wealth formula event so i'm going to remind you again don't miss it this is a great opportunity to meet your colleagues and meet me we always keep these events small so you'll get a chance to get to know everybody and make some good friends and come out April 22nd and 23rd. Lots of things to learn, lots of opportunities to see some of the assets that if you're in the investor club already, you, you probably own. And also an opportunity to, to socialize and make a lot of uh, good new friends. So again, go to Wealth Formula Events with an S.com. Check it out before it's too late. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. 
You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.